0: Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you today. I want to thank uh, Rich Etter for doing a great job last Sunday, sharing the word and inspiring hearts. So we are a congregation that's blessed with a number of people who are really are very good communicators and love the Lord. And so it's wonderful that we have them at our disposal in that regard. So we're, we're very, very blessed to have that. Uh, a couple of things, Ruth told me to remind you that if you're going to Send some money for the uh, um, fund, sale. the hoagie sale. Yeah, and just put it there. So, Mark, so mark the the white envelope. Uh, if you put hoagie sale money in there, just mark that white envelope in that regard. So the offering counters know how to designate that. And then, um, if anyone's interested, I have a, a Relatively small container of vegetables back there from my garden, uh, so you can help yourself to some cucumbers, some tomatoes. Uh, there's a zucchini back there, I think. And and by the way, if any of you have gardens and you want to share your stuff, uh, feel free to bring it uh, Sunday mornings and share it with our church family. Uh, I'm sure there are some people who would really enjoy that. So uh, and I'm sure I'll be sharing some more. Uh, the garden is kind of weird this year because we had a cold uh, early summer, and then we had a drought, so everything is coming in kind of weirdly, uh, at least in my garden it is, so um, you know, but feel free to share with the church family here, that would be a great thing. So anyway, um, so we are continuing on in the series, this, uh, generally speaking, this apologetic series, and um, I wanted to reframe again so that we're all following uh, where we are in this particular thing and to just, just to remember uh, what's at stake and the people involved and that, uh, you know, to, in whatever degree that God calls us, we are all evangelists. We are all apologists. We are all that. Um, I ran across this uh, meme uh, recently about John Wesley. Now, any of you who know John Wesley know that John Wesley was the founder of, Method, of the Methodist denomination, uh, Methodism, which came out of Anglicanism, and he spent a lot of time uh, both in Great Britain and here in the United States uh, sharing the gospel. He was a primary evangelist, I think, in the first Great Awakening with George Whitfield, and I'm sure that George Whitfield had some of these challenges as well. But this is from John Wesley's journal, as he does ministry. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached at St. Anne's. was asked not to come back anymore. (laughs) Sunday p.m., May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacons said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday at May 12th, preached at St. George's kicked out again. Sunday a.m. May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pasture, 10,000 people came to hear me. He was one of the primary evangelists of the, of the First Great Awakening. Now, I don't know about you, but after that, I experienced at least three or four of those, I might... Rethink my tactics or wonder if this is what I'm supposed to be doing or whatever, but he just stayed the course and he remained faithful. And both he and people like Whitfield, as well as many others, over time would preach to crowds of five, six, seven, 10,000 people. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to faith in Christ. And today, even with all of its problems, <clears throat> the Methodist denomination is one of the largest denominations in the country. Might be the second largest after the American Baptists, or the Southern Baptists. So I want to say to all of us not to be discouraged. And who knows how many people, maybe in that 10,000 there, how many... How? some of them may have been present at earlier services that he spoke at and was asked to leave or kicked out or whatever. And it was not, it's not like he was being radical. There, in, in the historic Methodist theological tradition, almost everybody here would ascribe to their theology. Now, Methodists tend to be Armenian, Presbyterians tend to be Calvinist, but on the whole, there was a lot there that almost anybody here could agree on. So it wasn't like he was a radical, crazy kind of person. He wasn't. He was simply preaching the gospel, and the people didn't want to hear it, and he was thrown out of more places than he was welcomed. And that just might be a sign of faithfulness. Because I can tell you that that my theology has changed very little in the 40 years or so that I've been doing ministry. And yet, my theology appears to be more and more radical in the world in which we live. And so, you know, I'm staying the course. I don't think I'll ever get a chance to speak to 10,000 people, and I don't know that I'll ever get thrown out of a church or a bull let loose on the people that I'm trying to preach to, but I'm going to stay the course. And I want us to stay the course. I want us to understand that what you believe, what you treasure, what grips your heart in relationship to the faith that you have in Christ is offensive to many people in the world in which we live. Because they don't know any better or because they're rebellious. But that doesn't mean that what you believe and think is wrong They aren't rejecting you so much as they are rejecting God. The God that they see in you. And that's a good thing, that they see God in you. I mean, after all, when we talk about evangelism and particularly apologetics, we are talking about people who oftentimes choose not to believe in God at all. They have no use for God. They believe that you and I Trust in, have faith in fairy tales, myths, or institutions that just want to control people. That seems to be an increasing increasingly bigger part of what people are the critique they have against Christians in the church is just religion is just designed to control people. but they never really look at what they believe. I mean, not really. And they certainly don't look at the kind of faith that's necessary for them to hold to what they believe. So, when you're an atheist, for example, it is the belief that there is nothing and nothing happened to nothing. And then nothing magically exploded for no reason creating everything, and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs and to us. Now, I believe that there was a first cause. That the universe in which we live happened because somebody made it happen. That nothing can't create nothing. You might want to argue, well, the universe in which we live is eternal. Okay, prove it. Because that's not what the first and second laws of thermodynamics say. So it seems to me that this requires a tremendous amount of faith. Let me just, let's just read it again. Atheism is the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing. Two negatives cannot create a positive. If you have zero plus zero, what do you have? Zero. Zero. Nothing plus nothing is nothing. And then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything. And then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into a self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs and into people like us and things of that nature. Another person puts it this way. To be an atheist, I would have to believe nothing produced everything, non-life produced life, randomness produced precision, chaos produced order. Now, honestly, how much faith do you have to have to believe that this is true? Now, if you want... Um, because some of you might enjoy these kinds of memes. Are, they're helpful in terms of arranging. I thought I can send this out to you in a, a text message or whatever so that you have this. Actually, I sent the second one to you uh, not too long ago, but the first one I can send to you as well. Now, not all atheists are like this. There are some atheists that are intellectually honest. They observe the world around them, They see the impact that Christians and the church have had in the world in which they live. And overall, they see that that impact was very good and unique and very distinct. There is an author, a scholar that I've read quite a bit of. His name is Tom Holland. He's a self-described atheist, but really, honestly, two of the texts that he's written that I'm familiar with, he, he makes such a powerful case for the Christian faith because of the impact that the Christian faith has had upon the world in which we live. So while in some senses he may not believe in the existence of God, he does see the poignancy in the and the importance of the Christian faith in the world in which we live. So in that text below it says, while studying the ancient world, Holland writes he realized something simply, that the ancients ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children, that is true, the bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide, that is the murder of children, was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. How did we get from there to here? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It is ironic, Holland notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christianity is derided. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. So, here is a, a first level scholar. And I'll have to say that of some of the scholarly texts that I've read over the years, his would be among the more challenging. It's just so in depth, so rich in terms of what he does. And yet, when he looks at things honestly, he cannot help but conclude the important significance and the contribution that Christianity has made to the world. So i got to wonder how far is Tom Holland from being a Christian. Now, contrary to that, C.S. Lewis says this, when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. So that when people know that we are Christian, they watch us very closely. And they look for any kind of variance. So, I mean, this is a little scary. They think they know all that's involved when it comes to what a Christian, how a Christian ought to act or what it means to be Christian, which isn't entirely true. And so sometimes we may say something or do something that they think is a violation of that, which may not be true. But the truth of the matter is, is that they do know a lot and they do watch a lot. And anybody here who works in the rural world and and your people that you work with know that you attend church. And if you've come, come right out and said, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, then they watch you. Now, I could just go around the room Because I can tell you that the little part-time job I have, they watch me. Not only that, but they sometimes may even try to, without even knowing it, test me. To see what I might say or what I might do. And I have to, almost every day that I go there, I pray, Lord, Help me to be the kind of witness that I can be because I know that I'm being watched. And that's fine. Watch me. So if you're being watched, what do your people see? What do they hear? What is their experience? Do we convey a sense of peace? Of love? Are we impatient? Do we join in when we shouldn't join in? This is all part of our witness and our example in the world wants to see, in some ways, really want to see Jesus. So do they see Jesus? I think they could see Jesus more in me than what they do. You know that, I think it's in the great Thanksgiving that we read, where it says, forgive us for the things that we have done and that we have not done. So Christians are more attuned to what we call sins of commission. Right? You know what a sin of commission is. So a sin is something that a sin of commission is what you do actively. You intentionally do that particular sin. A sin of omission is a sin that of something that you should have done but did not do. And I think that most Christians are largely blind to the sins of omission. And yet, those might be the sins that compromise our witness more than anything else. Does this make sense to all? Am I conveying this properly to you? So, moving on then. Because there are all kinds of different believers out there, right? Or non-Christians, non-believers. So this is what some non-believers or even maybe cultural Christians think. Where they might think, We regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. We are surrounded by people who think that way. Like, God is the safety net, and I hope I don't have to use him, but if I do, I want him to be there. Well, God is far more than a safety net. And when we think of God in that way, we really lose the perspective of what it cost God to save us from our sins. In other words, this is all one-sided here. And it's it's a faith of convenience, if it's a faith at all. Lewis says this, It cost God nothing so far as we know to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. It didn't cost God anything to create the universe, to make something out of nothing. He didn't have to pay for that. It wasn't like he was sweating to make that happen. He just did it. He spoke it and it came into being. But to get you and I reconciled to him cost him the life and death of his son Jesus Christ. That makes the parachute thing kind of pale, don't you think? As it should. That sentiment also makes the following sentiment kind of ridiculous as well, because we are again surrounded by cultural Christians and non believers who think this. If your entire theology is God is love and do not judge, then you don't have true biblical Christianity, you have Oprah. <laughs> and so if you want to trust Oprah for your eternal salvation, then have at it. But if this is true, then it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. It wasn't necessary for God the Father to sacrifice God the Son. And it certainly doesn't convey what we've been saved from, ourselves, the nature of ourselves. Steve Lawson says, Salvation is not making a good person merely better, nor making a sick person well It's making a dead person alive in Christ. Ephesians 2.1 For you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Salvation is about making you and I who are dead alive. We're dead prior to Christ. We've been made alive through Christ. That sort of makes Oprah's theology pale by comparison, wouldn't you say? God doesn't want to deprive us of earthly joys, but to rescue us from bondage to earthly joys. It is bondage that hinders blessing. God wants to rescue us not from gold, but from chains of gold. And that's the world. The world promises chains of gold. If you only obey the world, if you only latch on to their wisdom then you can have gold. But it's chains of gold. And we are in those chains of gold. And a chain is a chain. And bondage is bondage. But Christ wants to break us free from those chains and from that bondage. Jonathan Edwards says this, They who truly come to God for mercy come as beggars and not as creditors. They come for mere mercy, for sovereign grace, and not for anything that is due. We are not entitled to anything. God does not owe us anything. Just because we're human and just because he's love doesn't mean that we are entitled. We come knowing that we are utterly, completely, absolutely dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. And that without that, we have zero hope. And it's not its not the world saying, well, you know, God's all loving and so he's never going to send anybody to hell. It's not that ideology. It's not our good intentions. It's not our own righteousness it's not any of that I've said this before in comparison to the holiness of God to his purity and goodness this room here reeks with sin in comparison and you know what everybody here by the world standards you're a very good person Everyone would want to live next door to you. They wouldn't mind being related to you. You're great people. But in comparison to the holiness of God, our true nature reeks with sin. Our righteousness is like a pile of filthy rags, says Isaiah. But because of his great mercy, because of his sovereign grace, we can expect this that death for the Christian is to fall asleep in the arms of Jesus and waking up and finding out that you are home. That when we die in this world, after having trusted in Christ, we can expect to wake up to be in the presence of Jesus, to feel his love, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, His healing, his restoration, all of those things. Those are the promises, that and more. So we can't trust what the world says, what their perspective is. And it's radical. It's so very, very radical in comparison to what the world thinks and believes. I mean, it's so intense. So I sent you out this meme not too long ago, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it again. The apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. The people that he dragged out of homes, the people that he threw into jail, the people that died by his hand or according to his encouragement and affirmation, those people, when Paul entered heaven, were thrilled to see him. The forgiveness, the love, which transcends anything that we could possibly grasp here. So when I began this series, there was, I think, this sense uh, among most of us, that the reason why most people reject Christ or will not consider Jesus Christ, even though through our, through our evangelistic efforts, is because of something that we are probably doing wrong. We don't know enough, we don't use the right approach, um, we don't have enough information, uh, All those kinds of things that were inadequate. We we just we don't know, and there is a lot of truth to that. That you know, people are intimidated. Um, they don't know what to say. Um, and so, we hesitate to engage people who reject Christ. <clears throat> but what I wanted to do in this section of the series is to share with you that there are other reasons why people reject Jesus. It doesn't have to do with just our poor witness or our inadequacy or not knowing how to share the Roman road or the the four spiritual laws or the EE, evangelism explosion, method of bringing people to faith, that, that there are other reasons that really we have no control over and so I want us to be aware of those as well. And so I've been spending some time on that. So two, week, two weeks ago, when I asked you, give me reasons why people reject the faith, you said, these are four of them. There might I think there were a few more, but these are the top four. non Non-believers being angry at God, observing hypocrisy in the church, disappointment, uh, disappointment and or anger with God because of suffering, and or negative conditioning influence teaching education from parents and adults for kids who just don't know any better, young adults who don't know any better, people who are raised in irreligious homes, so they know nothing about uh, Christ at all. And so I this last three weeks, I've been sharing with you the what you would call the intrinsic reasons, the the biblical intrinsic reasons about the the inward reasons having to do with why people don't come to faith. And so I shared with you, Um, And I'm going back over these because during the summer especially, we have people in and out all the time. And so this is my way of just trying to keep people abreast of what it is we've discussed so far. So the last three sermons, these were the primary points that the Bible tells us that people reject God because of their rebellious hearts. They are rebellious and they have no interest and they will not submit or surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They want to do what they want to do. And number two, the believer is not always bound to defend the faith nor to evangelize hardened, rebellious hearts. There are people out there who are so hardened in their faith, so hardened in their life that and and so poised to attack, you just don't waste your time on them. There are those people. And then additionally, uh there's resistance to Christ and His gospel can be seen from a darkened heart. There are some people whose hearts are so darkened, so so like the Assyrians that Jonah was supposed to evangelize. They were so clueless. Those Assyrians were so clueless. Their hearts were so uh, darkened against the things of Yahweh of God Himself that God described them in this way. He said, "These people are so lost." They don't even know their right hand from their left hand. Now, how lost do you have to be not to know your right hand from your left hand? And there are those people in this world who are so utterly lost because of how they've been raised or information that they've been given that they are completely lost. And they are difficult to bring to faith in Christ because that's their nature. And all people deserve Christ-like compassion, but especially those people because you have to undo so much to redo what's really important. You see what I'm saying? Because they bring all these assumptions with them about God that you have to dismantle in order for them to get the right information about who and what God really is. So ultimately, it's not an either-or scenario about whether a person is, has a, a rebellious heart or a darkened heart. Most nonbelievers are a combination of all with one or two primary reasons followed by the, all the others. So in other words, so there are some nonbelievers whose hearts are just really darkened, but they also are kind of clueless as well. And there are some people out there who are really just clueless, but they kind of, to a lesser degree, have a darkened heart. And then in addition to that, some of them have experienced real frustration when it comes to suffering or or those kinds of things. And so it's a combination of all of that. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can break through all of that. And so that's why we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So, what this means is we must be faithful with what we have been called to be faithful with. You cannot control who is rebellious in the way that they are rebellious, whose heart is darkened in the way that it is darkened, what kind of suffering they may have experienced, what kind of frustration with God. You can't control any of that. You can only control what you can control, and that is your faithful witness. And your readiness to be able to share whenever you feel led by the Lord, either in an event or over a period of time. In today's world, most people come to faith over time. It's our witness over time. It's, they, it's our words over time that begin to break through, that saturate them. And the Holy Spirit uses that to bring them to saving faith in Christ. We must be faithful with what we are called to be faithful with, being a good example and faithful sharing. And trust that God will be faithful with what he has promised to be faithful with, and that is illuminating the heart and bringing conviction of sin. So, last two weeks ago, we talked about 1 Corinthians 2.14, and in that particular passage, we talk about how non-believers have this darkened heart, and so I won't go back over that again. I just wanted to remind you now that there are a series of scriptural passages that I'm going to share with you that describe what we've talked about so far, that non-believers either have a darkened heart and or... Uh, a rebellious heart, and that these texts bring, I think, some perspective about how we do apologetics and how we evangelize non-believers. So if you have your Bibles then, and I only have time to get to this one, um, this is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And in this particular text, it um, the Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthians. Now, recall that the city of Corinth was a city that had a a sterling reputation when it came to the wisdom tradition, the the Hellenistic wisdom tradition. Athens, Alexandria, Corinth were some of the big cities uh, that were prominent when it came to Greek wisdom. So, um, and there were, and so they had whole groups and organizations and societies devoted to just the exploration of wisdom. And so Paul is writing this to Christians in the city of Corinth with this vaunted reputation of Greek wisdom. And he says this in verse four, three, and four. And even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. So there apparently there are some people out there who can't see the gospel for what it is. Can't see it. Doesn't make sense to them. Um, And it's veiled. In other words, it's covered. They can't see through it. There's something that's preventing them from being able to see through it. So again, let me just say that there is this underlying belief within Christendom that if only you say the right words... And if only you do it the right way, then uh, then then you're almost guaranteed for a person to come to faith in Christ. I mean, that has been a part of my experience of Christendom for decades. And those people, as sincere as they are, are wrong. It's much more complex than that. So, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, if you know somebody who is resistant to the gospel, if there are people watching or listening to this podcast and either You are resistant to the gospel. Understand you might be being victimized by the God of this world, that is Satan, who is blinding you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that should make everybody catch their breath. That The second most powerful entity in all of reality has devoted himself to blinding the hearts and minds of people, veiling the gospel. Now, that's not to say that God can't break through that. He does all the time. And we'll get into some other texts in relationship to that. But that is to say that at least initially, If you do not know Jesus, the primary reason why you do not know Jesus is because the gospel and its light is being veiled. You have been blinded by Satan himself. And that is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Christians in Corinth. That if you, he says, or anybody that you know is resistant to the gospel, they cannot see it, they will not see it, then it's because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded them. Who here likes to be blinded from reality? Who here would not be offended if somebody intentionally blinded you or kept from you important information or awareness. One of the most offensive things you could do to somebody is to put a sack over top their head so that they could not see where it is that they are, who it is, who it is that's there with them, and yet expect them to act normal So, verse 4: In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, by extension, this is also another reason why we have compassion for non-believers, because they have become unwitting victims of the God of this world, that is Satan. That should be chilling. Maybe we know how to pray a bit better, right? So in essence, people who refuse to believe have been blinded by Satan. Their hearts are not illuminated, but rather darkened through oppression and deception. And that's what the wisdom of the Greeks did. And that is what the wisdom of our time does. It's designed to blind. The wisdom of our world is designed to blind. And sometimes it is exquisitely designed. It's just really effective. And so we've been duped. We think that we believe the truth, but we are not believing the truth. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis says, readers are advised to remember the devil is a liar. And we are blinded because we believe the lies. So, when i say then in in conclusion when i say then that there are some people out there whose opinions simply don't matter to me in my debate with them that i presuppose the existence of god i presuppose the existence of jesus christ i presuppose all of that and any wisdom or information that they would try to leverage against me there's some of that i will just discount not interested it has no bearing, no worth, because it is a lie. It is a lie, and I will not fall for it. So I will pick up these other texts next week and unpack some of them, but I'm, I'm hoping, and you feel free to tell me if this is not the case, I'm hoping that these additional texts are Expanding our understanding of like uh, how we share the gospel and how we may defend the gospel because it's not always what we do or don't do. It's just as much what they are and what they are not. It's all of that. And we will not be very effective over the long haul if we don't aren't aware of those kinds of things